James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I want to ask you just to ponder this question. Do you think you could be an effective eyewitness of a crime? You You watch the cop shows and there's a crime committed and then they ask the guy who was a bystander. Well, what did, what did he look like? The guy who pulled the trigger. And what kind of car was he in? What was the driver? What was the license plate number? And which way did he go? And do you think you could, you could do that kind of thing? I have my doubts about me. I'm not the most uh, observant person. Uh, it's interesting, interesting though, they've found that when there is a single eyewitness to a crime, those eyewitnesses are not always as reliable as you and I might think. They've, they've done studies. When there's a single eyewitness, oftentimes the, that eyewitness's memory fades over time. The longer there is between the time the crime was committed and the time the trial takes place, the more those memories sort of fade. So you might say, uh, at the time, you might see someone commit a crime and you think, well, I've got that person's image burned in my memory. But studies have shown that if a few months pass after a while, that memory may kind of morph into somebody that looks similar, but not exactly like them. So people have been sent to jail on the evidence of of eyewitness testimony, a single eyewitness, and then been exonerated through DNA evidence. And it was proven that wasn't the guy who committed it when that eyewitness swore that he did it. Um, Maybe that's one of the reasons why the Jewish law, the law of Moses, said that uh, no crime was to be taken seriously unless it unless it was uh, presented by two or three eyewitnesses. Um, now, the reason I bring this up is not for any legal reason. You'll be glad to know. But uh, because the Bible gives us multifaceted views of many things. Have you ever wondered why there's four different Gospels in the New Testament? Four different versions of the same story. Now, I don't think that's because any of the four are unreliable. But I think it's because four different eyewitnesses give us four different views of the same events so that we make sure we get all the angles of those stories. We see Jesus from four different angles and it helps us give a fuller picture of who he was and what he came to do. And here's my real point. In James, we get a different view of salvation than the one we get from Paul. So, uh, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but Paul it was the, the one who more than any other apostle taught us about grace. It's not that, that Paul came up with the idea of grace, that was God. But Paul was the one who put it into words for us to understand. When you read a, a passage, for instance, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the free gift of God, so that not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Well, that puts it really clearly that no human being can earn their salvation. And he even comes out and says, not as a result of works. So there is no work you can do to earn God's salvation. And, and that's revolutionary. That's, you don't find anything like that in any other religion in the world, including Judaism, which is the religion that, that all of these men grew up in. Uh, every re- world religion has this in common. It's about what you can earn. It's about what you can accomplish, or it's about what you can grasp in some cases. The things you can, you know, the enlightenment you can reach with your mind, or the things you can do with your your hands or your feet or your body. And those are the things that impress God. Those are the things that make you a, a better person, and that's how you get to salvation. Only Christianity says you can be the worst person in the world, and yet if you are willing to receive the grace of God, then you can be saved. And that's what Paul taught us. 
that had never been put into words in exactly the way that it was until he wrote Romans and Ephesians, especially those two, but all of his epistles, right? And then along comes James and says, yes, but let me tell you the way I see salvation. And as an apostle and as a brother of the Lord, his view is just as, is, as relevant. And in many ways, those two seem to clash, but I'm going to try to show you they don't actually. So what does James teach us? What is his view of salvation? What does he teach us about what it means to be saved? That's your little setup. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So that's the statement right there. Faith without works is dead. That may be the most famous statement in the whole book of James. And this is interesting. For a long time, Martin Luther, no less than Martin Luther, had his serious doubts as to whether the book of James should even be in the Bible. He called it a right strawy epistle, an epistle made of, of hay. Now, he came around in the end, Martin Luther did, and, and came to understand. But you kind of understand, okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, so sorry for those of you that you know, follow my rabbit trail just for a moment. Martin Luther was, was a Catholic priest, right? He was, he was, he was a monk. So he, he believed that God needed to be impressed by extreme acts of religiousness, by you know, a, a vow of chastity, a vow of poverty, and, and, and fasting, and, and flogging yourself for your sins. That's the God he believed in, and then he was converted to the gospel when he was, when he was charged with, with teaching the, the book of Romans to a bunch of seminary students. And suddenly he realized, oh, it's by faith. All you have to do is believe and God receives you. He's not an angry deity up on high who, who hates us and, and only wants to take the best of us. No, he wants us to be saved. He does what's necessary to save us. And all we need to do is accept it. And, and so he's coming from that angle, right? He's coming from an angle of, I don't like religion that's focused on what we do. So he reads the book of James and he sees, oh, faith without works is dead. And that bothers him. But eventually he came around. Why? So... James's argument is that a person who says, oh, I'm a believer, and if you were to say, well, I don't see any evidence of salvation in your life, that person would come back with, well, I believe, and that's all that, that needs to happen. I've, I've, I have faith in the gospel, and that's all that I need. James's point is, if you don't see evidence of salvation, if you don't see works, if you don't see a change in that person's life, then their faith is dead. Their faith is worthless. It's not saving faith. So what he does to illustrate this in, the, in, this, in what we just read and the, and the rest of the passage we're going to read is he gives four examples to try to illustrate it. Two of them negative and two of them positive. So the first negative example is he says, imagine a poor person and he calls him a brother or sister. So we're, we're thinking of a, a poor person in your church. And keep in mind, of course, Poverty was much more common. Real extreme poverty was much more common in that culture than it is in ours. We live in a culture where no one has to starve to death in America, right? There, there's food. There's food for anybody who wants it. There's places to stay. There are shelters. There, there, there's government assistance. 
So yes, do we have poverty in America? Yes, but nothing like they had in the ancient world, where if you were widowed, if you uh, were a farmer and your, your crops failed, if, if for whatever reason you didn't have income, you would die unless someone took pity on you. That's what he's talking about. And so he's imagining that in your church one day, there is a man or woman who says, I, I don't know what to do. My kids are starving. I'm starving. We don't have a place to live. We've got no income, no food. I mean, we have days to live. And if you hear that and say, well, God bless you. Does that do that person any good? That's the argument James is making. And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. You don't really have compassion on that person if all you say is, God bless you. Compassion, real compassion in that situation is action. And the church knew this. This is what set the Christian church in the early days apart from all the other religions is they knew that it was their responsibility to help the poor as best they could. Think again about how Jesus responded when he saw the crowds. Think about, uh, for instance, the one story where he, he comes to his disciples after they've been out preaching for weeks and he says, let's get away. And they say, oh, hallelujah, let's get away. And then they get away, but the crowds follow them. And what does it say? It says, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And in Jesus's case, every time when it says he had compassion, it doesn't mean he said to Peter and Paul, Peter and James and John, isn't that a shame? Those poor people, somebody should help them. No, he helped. He did miracles. He took a little boy's lunch and multiplied it and fed them. He took action. So again, that's the difference between words and real compassion. That's the illustration that James uses here. Taking it all the way through, it means that salvation, and this is lesson number one about, about, from James about salvation, salvation is more than words. Salvation is more than words. It's more than just standing in front of a church and saying, I accept Christ as my Savior. It's more than getting baptized, which is a public profession of one's salvation. It is possible to say the right words. It's even possible to pray the sinner's prayer. It's possible to get baptized by an ordained minister in a gospel-preaching church and yet never really come to faith in Christ. And you will know it based on whether there is fruit or not, whether there are works that are done in response to that salvation. That's the point James is making. A profession of faith that doesn't produce good works is as useless as telling a poor person, God bless you and not doing anything for them. Now, that seems, let's go back to Paul. That seems to contradict what Paul says. I quoted Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved. This not by works, so that no one should boast. But you can't stop there. Because the very next verse, my favorite verse in the whole Bible is Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul in one verse says, your salvation is not as a result of works, but you were saved for good works. Does that make sense? Your works don't gain your salvation, but you're saved so that you can do good works. And that's, in, that's an important distinction. That is important to know. So salvation is more than words. If it, It's supposed to produce real change in our lives. So if we have friends, taking that example I started with, who profess Christ, but they don't show any evidence of salvation, 
They don't show any change in their lives. Maybe they have nothing to do with the church. And you talk to them and you say, I'm worried about you. Well, don't worry about me. I was raised in church and I got baptized when I was six. And I still believe everything I believed back then. What do we do with that? What I believe we should do with that is pray for them and love them and share with them as if they were lost. I, I think the way we treat that is we, we, we just encourage and work on them and, and hope that they get back in. I mean, God's not going to be offended if we get to heaven and, and he tells us, you know, for 40 years you prayed for this guy and he was actually saved all that time. I can't believe you. No, he's, God's going to work it out. And, and if that person is a true believer and you're witnessing and praying for them, who knows, you might get them back into church. You might get them back into a right relationship with him. Either way, it's our job. It's our job to love those who are not displaying any fruit of salvation in their lives. Not our job to tell them, I don't believe you're actually saved. You understand that, right? That's not our job. Our job is to see this person is not displaying fruit of salvation, and that makes me sad. And for whatever reason that is, I want to help them get where they need to be. All right, so... The next part of the passage, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 18. When did they make that print so small? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he says someone could argue, well, you know, I, I've, I've got faith. I just don't have any works. It's okay. And, and, and James's point is, no, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to just say, I believe. And his second negative example is the demons believe. The demons believe. I've heard someone say the devil is a better theologian than anybody in your church, and yet he's still the devil. And that is absolutely true. I guarantee you, Satan knows more about God than anybody in this room. And he knows more scripture. Remember, when he came to Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness, he used scripture to tempt him. Doesn't, don't the scriptures say that if you throw yourself off of a tower that the angels will catch you in their hands and keep you from striking your feet against a stone? And it's only because Jesus was who he was that he knew the, the scriptures even better that he was able to fend off that temptation. So just belief, just knowledge, James's point is, is not enough. To take it a little further. When Jesus was on earth. Who was the first one? Who was the first individual or creature or being to recognize him and publicly proclaim him as Messiah? The demons. Long before any of the disciples said, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the demons would see him and shout out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Think about the story of the legion where Jesus goes over to the other side of the Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, to the Gentile territories. And there's this man who's who's lost his mind and everybody's terrified of him because he's so strong and they try to bind him with chains and he breaks them and, and the disciples are scared of him too. And, and yet he sees Jesus and he falls to his knees and begs him, please don't hurt us. Please, please don't hurt us. That should give you and I a lot of confidence, shouldn't it? That the one we believe in who is in us is greater than any evil force. But also it shows you the demons understood who Jesus was. They believed that he was God in human flesh. They believed that he was perfect and sinless. They believed that he was powerful, powerful enough to do anything he wanted to them. They had all, I mean, if you want to put it this way, 
Those demons had faith in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't saving faith. It wasn't saving faith because their works were the opposite of saving faith. Their works were destructive. In fact, their, their end was destruction. Jesus cast them into a, a herd. I don't know, is it a herd of pigs? I don't know, a bunch of pigs. And the pigs killed themselves because that's what demons do. They destroy. Um, so salvation. So the lesson number two, salvation's more than words, but secondly, salvation's more than just intellectual belief. It's more than just believing with your mind. It's belief that produces action. And my favorite illustration of the difference between just belief and, and saving faith, I didn't make this up, but I love it, is if you take somebody who's never been on an airplane before, maybe some of you have never been on an airplane, maybe you're just terrified of that, but you take somebody who's never been on an airplane before and you ask them, do you believe that it's possible for a person to get on, a par- on an airplane right now and fly uh, to New York City and be there in less than six hours? They'd probably say, yeah, because they've seen it on TV. They've, they've known people who've done it. Yeah, I believe. But believing with your mind won't get you to New York City or Cancun or, or wherever you want to go, Paris or Singapore. You have to actually get on the plane. Saving faith is getting on the plane, right? It's, it's, not, it's not watching it on TV. It's not going to the airport and watching the planes take off and land. It's not even buying a ticket. It's when you get on the plane. That is saving faith. And that's faith that takes you somewhere. So verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> James is rough, isn't he? He just called us fools. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So so James has given us two negative examples. He's given us the example of a poor person that doesn't get any help. He's given us the example of a demon who believes intellectually but doesn't believe in terms of salvation. Now his his first positive example is of Abraham. And this is someone every Jew would have understood, would have known, uh, the father of their their whole race. Um, But he's, he's referring, of course, to the story of Abraham offering Isaac to the Lord. And that, I'll just tell you, is tied from my two least favorite stories in the whole Bible. That and the story of Job. Those are two scary stories to me. They they just unsettle me because I don't completely understand why God put those two men through what he put them through. I'm just being honest. I know that God knows more than I do. I know God was right. I'm not arguing that. I I just always read those stories and think, Thank you, Lord, that it was Abraham and Job and not me. Every other story I, I see, I go, okay, God, I want you to treat me that way, but not with Abraham and Job. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. It's, it's a confusing and a troubling story. And I assume all of you know the story. I'm not going to recap it. But I believe that the point of the story of, of Abraham binding Isaac to that altar up on top of Mount Moriah, I believe the point of the story for us is that God was teaching Abraham and through Abraham teaching us that it's not about what we can do to impress God. It's not about the size of the offering we offer. 
It's about what he does for us. Because think about it. What greater thing could someone offer to impress a God than their own son, their only son, right? They're only the son of the promise, at least. I mean, that's the greatest offering you could give. And God says, no, no, I'm going to offer something instead. Because you remember, there was a ram caught in the thicket. In fact, the key line of that whole story for me is when Abraham and Isaac are on their way up the mountainside and Isaac says, well, Father, I've got, I've got fire and I've got wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb, my son. So somehow Abraham knew. Hebrews uh, 11 tells us that, that Abraham believed that if, if he went through with killing Isaac, God was going to raise him from the dead. Either way, God's not going to be defeated in this. He didn't know how God would do it. And then at the last minute, God provides that ram. And that's what got sacrificed. The, the ram died, so the son went free. And the lesson for us and the lesson for Abraham was, it's not about what you can offer. For Abraham, think about it. He lived in a culture where other religions did offer their children to their gods. And God was saying, you don't need to do that. It's not about what you offer. For us, on the other side of the cross, we see that Jesus was the lamb that God provided. That, that God provided a lamb so Abraham's son went free, but God didn't do the same for his son. He, he sacrificed his son so we could go free. And I think that's the point of the story. It still bothers me what poor Abraham had to go through for those hours, but God knew what he was doing. And, and, and it's beautiful. Now, here's let's come back to James. The point James is making, because isn't it interesting? I don't think anybody in James's time asked those kinds of questions. They weren't worried about it. They, they understood that's what God did, and they just accepted it. The point James is making is, Abraham offered Isaac in Genesis 22. But that quote, when it says, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's from Genesis 15. So God considered Abraham righteous before he ever offered Isaac. To put it in chronological terms, it was about 30 years before. So Abraham believes God, trusts God. God comes to him and says, go with me and I will make you a great nation. You will have as many children as the stars in the sky. And Abraham trusted God and God said, because of that faith, I declare you righteous. And then 30 years later, Abraham proves it through obeying God on Mount Moriah. So the point James is making is his actions didn't save him, but his actions were the outward evidence that he really was saved. So lesson three for us. Salvation's more than words. It's more than intellectual belief. And it's also salvation puts its money where its mouth is. Salvation does lead to acts of sacrifice, acts of devotion, acts of, of putting others ahead of yourself, acts of uh, extreme devotion to God. Salvation leads to change, but, but not just you, you stop doing certain sins. It's I, I give myself away. I give what is most precious to me to, to the work of God. That's real salvation. And, and for us, the encouragement of that example, the example of Abraham is this. You know, in, in an evangelical culture like we have here at our church and in many churches in this area, there's a lot of emphasis put on conversion stories. And I admit, I love conversion stories. I get, I get Christianity Today once a month. And every month when I get my new issue, I turn to the very back of the magazine because every month they have a conversion story. Every month. And I, I read that first and it always encourages me. We love conversion stories. You know, the guy on Skid Row 
uh, his family's left him and, and someone witnesses to him and he accepts Christ and now he's a, now he's a gospel preacher. You know, the, the woman uh, who, who had cancer and she was struggling and, and, and cried out to God and God didn't just save her, he healed her and now she's, you know, she's leading women to the Lord. And we love stories like that. But the point James, I think, would make to us is the good works you display now 20, 30, 40, 50 years after your conversion are every bit as glorifying to God, are every bit as impactful on the world as any conversion story. There's a lot of us, I'm sure, that just think, I don't have a, I don't have a great testimony. I don't have a, you know, who'd be impressed with what God has done in my life? Oh, you'd be surprised. When you serve the Lord, when you obey Him, God uses that obedience in, in magnificent ways. And you can thank God that, you got saved young and you didn't have to go through all those years of wandering like others. And you still have a great testimony. All right, so let's close out with verse 25 and 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's the second positive Example, and that is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Actually, from the context of the story, it seems that she was a madam. She was in charge of her whole brothel in the city of Jericho. Jericho was just across the Jordan River. That's the first city that the Israelites attacked when they crossed the Jordan uh, after their enslavement and 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and think about living in Jericho at that time. We don't usually think this way, but think about living in this city. And you, you've always thought you were safe because you're in a city with walls and, and, and nobody can attack. But you've heard these stories about this people group called the Hebrews and how 40 years ago they were slaves and the most powerful nation on earth. And that nation just got devastated until they finally set them free. And now they're here. Now they're coming to the land of Canaan. They've lived 40 years in the desert without crops, without water. They've just somehow they've survived. So their God is on their side. And so the people of Jericho are very afraid. And now here's Rahab doing what she does. And these two men show up at the door of her brothel and they are obviously not interested in her business. And so she works it out in her mind. These are Hebrews. They're here to spy out our city. And you think about the, uh, the dilemma she had right then or the opportunity, you might say. If she didn't believe all those stories about the God of Israel, then she could have seen this as an opportunity to become famous and maybe even rich. I've just caught two spies of the enemy. If I keep them here and go tell the authorities, I might get a big reward. At the very least, I will be the hero of the nation. But she did believe. She believed what she'd heard about the God of Israel. Maybe because... The, the, the idea of a God who loves all people made a lot of sense to a woman in her profession, a woman uh, experiencing what she'd experienced. Maybe she wanted it to be true that this God was real. For whatever reason, she believed and she protected those men at risk of her life and sent them back. It, I think it's amazing, first of all, two things. It's amazing that James would compare Rahab to Abraham, right? This is, this is the founder of their faith, the founder of their people, and a pagan prostitute. And he's comparing them. And he's not the only one. 
book of Hebrews does the same thing. Hebrews 11, Rahab and Abraham are side by side in the hall of faith. And that's, there's, there's another mention of Rahab in the New Testament. Anybody know where it is? Somebody said it. I heard it. In Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, she's one of four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in a time when you didn't mention women in the genealogy because nobody cared who your mother was. They only cared who your father was. Matthew chooses to mention four women, and Rahab is one of them. Now, why does Rahab keep coming up over and over again? Well, in fact, three times in the New Testament, which is more than Deborah or Ruth or Esther or a lot of other great women of the Old Testament. And I think the answer is grace. God wants to display Rahab as a trophy of grace. I think that's why Paul was who he was. God God used Paul. He held up Paul and said, look, I can save this guy. I can turn him around. I can can save anybody. And that's what he does with Rahab as well. He, He says to everybody who thinks, oh, I could never, I could never be accepted by God. I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. Well, look what I did with Rahab. Look what I've done for her. So I think the fourth lesson when he's talking about salvation is salvation is total surrender. Because Rahab didn't meet those spies and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad this God exists. I, you know, good to know. I believe in this God. No, she, in order to be saved, she actually had to, she had to put out a scarlet cord. letting. First of all, she had to protect those spies. Secondly, she had to put out a scarlet cord letting the the army of Israel, no, don't attack this house. And then she had to live among the Israelites. And she married an Israelite man and and raised a family and and became a great woman of faith. In other words, she had to change her whole life. She had to change everything. Salvation is total surrender. And I have to say here, as Christians, we walk a fine line and sometimes we err too much on one side. We walk a fine line in which we want people to understand anybody can be saved. But when we stress that to the exclusion of what it means to be saved, we make it sound like there's nothing to salvation than checking off a couple of boxes. I, I go through this during VBS every year when we have kids raise their hand and say, I, I want to I accept Christ as my Savior. And, and it's up to me, it's up to Kathy, it's up to others to, to sit down with these children and say, okay, tell me why you want to follow Christ. We have, to understand, we have to try to discern. Are they, are they doing this because they want to make their parents happy? Are they doing this because uh, they, they, just, they want to go to heaven when they die, but they don't really understand? I guess what I'm saying is we don't want to turn anyone away, but we don't want to make salvation seem like nothing. And that's the mistake a lot of churches make. Uh, you know, we don't want to install a, a water slide and then call it baptism, right? We, we don't want this to be commit, commitmentless because that's not the way Jesus operated. He went up to people and said, follow me. Yeah, you're going to have to leave your business. Yeah, you're going to have to drop your nets. Yeah, rich man, you're going to have to sell all you have and follow me, but I want you to follow me. He asked for commitment. He wasn't interested in getting his numbers up. He was interested in really seeing lives changed. And, and we as God's people have to, have to learn great discernment in, in how we do that. The point is not, how many did you baptize last year? Even though we keep track of those numbers and those numbers matter, the point is, are people's lives changing? And if they're not changing, then maybe we're not leading them to salvation. 
So let's go back to the beginning. We started with these two witnesses, Paul and James. Paul preaching this message of grace. But if you read his epistles, he's talking about how grace changes you. And then James, who says, faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean he doesn't believe in grace. You have to listen to both. You have to listen to both. James's message is salvation is more than just accepting. It's a total change in allegiance. It's Rahab leaving Canaan and becoming an Israelite. And every one of us needs to have a story that shows, here's how my allegiance changed. Even even somebody like me who grew up in church, I never didn't believe in God, right? There was never a time when I, I don't believe there's a God. But even so, I've changed allegiance from worshiping me and trying to use God to get what I want to, I want to serve him. I want to serve him alone. Jesus put it this way. He said, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. And when a worker finds it, he sells all that he has so he can go back and buy that field because he knows how valuable it is. He looks at that field and he says, that's not just a field. There's treasure in there. So it's worth everything that I have. I love that story because I think about, you know, obviously it didn't happen, but the way Jesus tells the story, I, I, I think about that worker trying to explain to his wife why I need to sell all your clothes and all your jewelry and our house and our livestock and the kids' toys and all I need to sell it all. But why? Trust me. And this is the one time it actually paid off that she trusted him because he bought the field and it, it, was, it was worth a hundred times what they sold for it. And that's Jesus's point. Salvation is when you realize that anything you give up for Christ is not even worth one one hundredth what you will get in return. And that's why Jesus could say anybody who is willing to lose his life for my, my sake will save it. There, there is never a thing, never a thing that you will sacrifice for the kingdom of God that you will later regret ever because that is how good and how faithful God is. So two views of salvation and we need to keep them both in our minds at all times. I hope that made sense. So let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so faithful. We praise you. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be full of faith, saving faith, and that we would share the gospel with people in such a way that they understand that salvation is free, but that they would also understand how, how valuable it is, that they would, when they see us and when they hear our words, that they would desire it like treasure in a field. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.